0: You're listening to Revenue Vitals with Chris Walker. There's a couple of things that I've been on my mind that I'm thinking through that I wanna share with people. So the first thing that I've been thinking about, this is for like revenue professionals, but it's a lot for marketers specifically is that we've like become so obsessed with this idea of measuring campaigns or like an individual piece of content is a good way to put it. Like People, if they're running ads, if they're posting a blog, if they're posting a video on TikTok, then they look at it and they say, I want to know exactly how much revenue that post did to do that. What do they look at? They look at click-through rate, they look at engagement rate, they look at number of impressions and all of these metrics that have actually no, no real correlation to overall results unless you're doing performance marketing. And so this like lead gen, demand gen type of mindset where we're going to be doing A-B tests where the objective is to get more clicks or a better click-through rate or more form, you know performance form fills or something like that, that type of mindset is built to do direct response. And if you move into a new way of looking at it, especially in create-demand channels like LinkedIn, TikTok, podcasts, communities, things like that, it's not about one piece of content. It's about the overall aggregation. And I want to provide some insights to people so people can really understand. I post content on LinkedIn. Some of the content that I post on LinkedIn right now will get 40,000 views and 200 likes. And other posts that I make will get a quarter million views to 500,000 views and get a thousand to two thousand likes. And the crazy thing is, is that the posts that only get 200 likes and 40,000 views are the ones where people DM me and say, Hey, that's really interesting. Can we work together? And so the idea that because it gets more views or more likes, especially on a platform like LinkedIn, and trying to say that, that's, that it drove more results because of that, I think is just totally off. Actually, When you're posting radical new insights that are going to make people think differently, less people are going to like it. And it's generally more effective at driving results. And so this idea that we're looking at these types of leading indicators like clicks or click-through rate, and then deciding that that piece of content was good or not good because of that outcome in a B2B process, I think is totally outdated and flawed. A new different way to look at it is looking at, at it by the program, looking at it by... LinkedIn, podcasts, community. You can look at dark social overall. You could look at Reddit. It's a specific program. Inside of that program, you might have a paid strategy. You might have an organic strategy. You might have a company page and personal page all feeding into it. Those are initiatives underneath that program. And all those initiatives roll up to delivering whatever that program delivers. So for instance, I was in here looking, and in our data, in the past 90 days, we've generated $4 million in pipeline from LinkedIn and 3.2 million from a podcast. And so we have like a lot of good... Do I care which podcast episode drove that outcome? No, I'm looking at it as the overall program of the podcast. So I think that's a, a mindset that a lot of people could take. I think it's going to get them out of this like super micro nitty gritty. And honestly, like it's just not that helpful. So That was was one thing that I wanted to drop. There's a couple other things in my mind. I'm going to go in a couple different directions here as we get set up and then we're going to get into questions. So cue your questions up. Uh, Feel free to drop them in whenever and I'll get to them. Another one that I wanted to talk through, and this is more of a, a CEO point, but I think it's important to share with people because the fact of the matter is that I'm never upset if somebody at my company decides to leave and go and work somewhere else which I think is a bold statement. I'm actually happy for them. It happened to me today. I called someone. I congratulated them. I was very happy for them. I thanked them for the contributions that they made to this company for the past 2 years in a 100% genuine idea. And I've left companies before where people ignore you at the door, where they like scoff at you for moving on. I think it's just a terrible sign of culture to be that way. For me, I'm, I'm grateful that they spent time here. I'm happy, I knew that they wanted to go and do that next thing and become a CMO at a SaaS company. And they went from... They were a senior manager, they came and worked at my company for 2 years, they grew into a VP, and then they got a CMO role, and they got exactly what they wanted. And I was the bridge to help them get there. That makes me feel great. And they worked their ass off and delivered tons of impact to my company and helped it grow for so long. I'm grateful for that too. And so I just I think that it's such a poor mindset, especially as a CEO, to look at as a bad thing when people are deciding to part ways and go and do something else. I think it's a sign. It's a negative sign of culture if people look down or think that it's wrong when people do that. Did I wish it it didn't happen? Actually, I I don't. I don't wish that it didn't happen. Like if someone else is going and is looking to chase their dream, or they think that something's better for them, then I'm going to support them on that. And it's my job as a leader and my job as leading the executive team to create a place and to understand people well enough that they always want to stay. And if for whatever reason, that alignment doesn't happen and someone parts ways, then it's a good learning opportunity. It's something to celebrate. So I wanted to drop that too, more as a CEO point. All right, first question here. How did you get your first client? Meg, great question. I got my first 3 customers in 2019. They were all people within my network. So, just when I updated my LinkedIn profile from head of marketing at this company to founder at Refine Labs, three people actually DM me within that week and said, Hey, and they were all people that I'd worked with in the past the CEO I'd worked with in the past, the VP of marketing I'd worked with before. And that they all were like, Hey, well, you know, let's work together. I did consulting with them. And then within two months, I was making more money than I had in my job being a consultant for three companies, making $20,000 a month. And then when that happens, then you're like, wow, like this is just the beginning. I'm only working 15 hours a week. I'm making 20,000. I used to work 60 hour weeks and make 15 grand a month. And so I think that that was a huge learning. And I think for first clients, you have to go back to your network and people, you don't have to, but I think it's a good strategy to go back to your network and look at who you've worked in the past, where you had good relationships with, where you could help. And also trying to make more people aware that, Hey, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm doing my own thing. I'm available. This is how I help companies and let people see that and come to you. And that was before nobody knew me at that point. I had a 1000 followers on LinkedIn. And I was still able to get that done. And I kept building and building. So that's what I would recommend to get your first couple. For like your first five through the network. And then after that, you got to start to figure out how can I create demand and get net new customers that haven't heard of me before. And that's where LinkedIn filled in for me. And that's where podcasts and now where TikTok's filling in. So hope that was helpful. What if the client keeps pushing the micro efforts? How do you switch the narrative? This is such an interesting question. We have gone through this and we continue to go through it. And at some point, if you want to do something different, then you need to tell customers that you're not going to do what they're asking anymore. Example here companies want to like for it, just an example this isn't a real example. Some customer wants us to do some like bullshit like click report for Google ads or something, and we say you hired a revenue r and d firm in the scope of work. it says that we don't do this type of stuff, and here's where we focus. It sounds like you want help from a B2B demand gen agency or a media agency should we revisit our scope and see whether or not Refine Labs is even the right fit for you cuz it sounds like you want you're asking us for things that are not what we do and at some point if you want to do things different you got to put a flag in the ground and say if if you're not on board with this customers then I'm going to go and get different customers is it hard yeah does it happen overnight no but at some point, the only way to do it is, is to be very clear, hey, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. And if you're looking to do the things that we don't do, then I think that you need to look for a different, a different provider or a different category of solution. You can also try and switch the narrative. You can also try and educate people. I do the most education at scale through content. So I think it's the most effective and it reaches the most people. And so that's how I, I push the narrative via content and dark social. So that's how I do it. I don't spend a lot of time in one-on-one conversations trying to convince someone to do something that they don't want to do. If you didn't have anyone to reach out to you, what would you have done? I didn't have anyone to reach out to. I just updated my LinkedIn profile and people reached out to me. There's 2 mindsets here. You either reach out to people or you find ways to get people to reach out to you. And I, and so if you reach out to people, you're basically reaching out to them, and then you have to, on a one on one level, educate them all the way through this. You're going to have lower win rates, you're going to have lower success rate. It's going to take longer, it's going to be more frustrating. Instead, I do the education up front. People then come to us, they already are educated, and then we just talk about how we want to work together. So if you're trying to build a business, it's different if you're a freelance, if you're a freelancer trying to work on three clients at once, but if you're trying to build a business, you have to figure out how to get people to come to you educated saying, I like the way you think. I want to do what your company does. You got to get people to come in. And so it's, uh, I don't think that it's about reaching out. I think it's about putting information out that pulls people back in. Christina has got a question. Everyone's pushing side hustles lately. Are they essential or just a smart move if you can make time? Christina, I think this is totally independent on each person and what they want to do. The idea that a side hustle is required, I think is totally not true and not appropriate for probably 98% of people. The people that are pushing a side hustle are also selling products and services that help you build a side hustle. So that's something as well. I in 2013 through 2018 always had a side hustle because i knew that i wanted to be a ceo and i knew that i wanted to not have a w2 or have to work with people that don't get it at some point in my life and so i always did that and i'm i just got so much learning i didn't make a ton of money from it i still had a job during that time i wasn't thinking about when that, can i quit my job it was really about the learning and so i think that Using it as a way. And then by the time I was like, had the opportunity to start my company, I'd already started two companies. I'd made a ton of mistakes. I knew a lot about finance. I knew a lot about marketing and advertising and sales. And it set me up to be successful. Instead of me starting my first company in 2019, I was starting my third company. Instead of me running, trying to run a company for the first time in 2019, I'd been doing it for six years. And so trying to paint a picture and understand where do you want to go. There's tons of ways to make $100,000 a year on your own. But you got to figure out how to get customers. You still basically have a job. You're still working for other companies. And if a customer leaves and you can't replace them, then you don't have income. And so there are pros and cons to the quote-unquote side hustle. I think that the people that... You almost like have it in you almost. So um, And if you have it in you, then I would say absolutely go for it. It's the best thing. I, and I wouldn't expect it to do so well that you quit your job in the next couple of times. Frame it up as a way to learn first and then see where you get from there. Do you cold call prospects or customers? No, we do not do any type of cold outbound. We don't even do like assumed intent data outbound where we get accounts that have been on our website or search something and cold call them. and. The reason that we don't do it is because we very clearly understand how our customer wants to buy. And if you asked 100 CEOs, CFOs, CROs, CMOs, and you said, how do you want to research, discover and buy products? And one of the responses was get cold called by someone to get educated on it. 0% of people would answer that question affirmatively. And so why would I do something that's completely misaligned with how my customer wants to buy? Additionally, it's highly ineffective, especially if you're selling something new and different. So if you're trying to sell a commodity, sure, you can probably give a little bit of a better price or a discount and have some success there. But a lot of people that listen to my stuff are trying to do something new and different. And if you're doing something new and different, you're basically just taking this huge education process that you have to educate a customer on And trying to do that in the sales process rather than upfront before they're talking to you in sales, which just leads to large sales inefficiencies, higher customer acquisition costs, low productivity, stuff like that. So we do not do that. How many clients do your people help per person? On our teams, our teams have 7 people on them. And they work with somewhere between 2 and 4 customers at once, depending on the size and maturity of the customers. So this many agencies that that companies evaluate probably have a group of people working on 20 or 100 accounts at once. And because we're doing something quite a bit different, we do it quite a bit differently. What's your thoughts on account-based selling? Nobody called it account-based selling in 2015 when we were doing it. But in Salesforce, we had our 100 gold accounts. We had 500 silver accounts. And we had 4,000 bronze accounts. And then what was the objective? Each territory was trying to close one gold account per year. They were trying to close X amount of silver accounts. And then they, whatever gold, bronze accounts we got, we got. If you're in B2B and you have a territory, you should do territory planning, tier out the customers based on ICP, ACV, overall opportunity, overall like ability to penetrate. And put together a strategy of which accounts that you're going to go after. Like All B2B selling is account-based, which is different than the branding and technology wrapped around what a category called account-based marketing. If you look at the category definition by Gartner or Forrester, it says that You have to run display ads and send cold emails and do, you know, do shit like that. And that's not what I mean when I say all accounts should be doing account, all B2B companies should be doing account based selling. All right. uh, Nate's got a question here. Chris, urgent need. How can I reach all independently owned pharmacy, convenience stores, and package store owners? Nate, a couple ideas for you. I think this is going to help a lot of people because a lot of, Companies B2B companies have audiences that are tough to reach. Small e-commerce companies, for instance, like e-commerce companies, less than 5 million in revenue are very hard to target. There's plenty of them. A couple of things that you could do, you could look and see if there is a Facebook group for these types of professions. And if there isn't one, then you could consider creating it. I would also go and look in Reddit, and I would look at all the threads related to the stuff that these people talk about, and I would be engaging and commenting in those threads with your perspective. Lastly, there might be a way to actually like acquire that data, although I don't think that you're in a position where you'd be able to pay for it or it may not be possible. You could also look for other means to target, but I think that in this type of area, the a content strategy in addition to a community strategy that's niched into here I think would be the best way. Also, you got pharmacies, convenience stores, and package store owners. And so you got to make sure that if you're going to have a community that it makes sense to have all of those different demographics and people, companies in there versus having going all in on one of them. It's an interesting debate. Like Out of those 3, there might be one type of company that's actually your target customer. And if you focused on them... The messaging could be tighter. The community would be more successful and more narrow and more focused. So that's something to consider. Jake, what's up? Good to have you here again. How do you calculate the goals for the 5 stages of the revenue R&D framework? Our company does $13,000 roughly per year. Jake, next time on Zoom, I'll actually bring the ROI model here so you can see it. The revenue R&D projects are based on what is needed to achieve the ROI based on the expenses of the development of the program. And so if you are spending $25,000 a month, let's say that, on headcount, tools, media, external firms, things like that, just say $25,000 a month, then your overall spend over six months would be $150,000. And so then you have to figure out how do I create enough pipeline to achieve positive ROI within six months. We define pipeline with win rates is greater than 25%. That means you take 150,000, you times it by four at minimum. So at minimum, at the max, you're going to need $600,000 in hero standardized pipeline to be able to have a one-to-one positive ROI on that program. In month seven, you're going to be ROI positive. And then you take that 600000 and then you break it down over the period of time into different categories. So for instance, this is an example, not exact definitions, but like stage two might be generating $100,000 in pipeline. Stage three might be generating $250,000 in cumulative pipeline throughout the program. Cumulative meaning you could have done $50,000 month one, $50,000 month two, $150,000 month three. Cumulatively, you have $250,000. Then you got stage four, which is going to be maybe be a hundred k a month for three months straight. Then you have the next one, which might be four hundred and fifty thousand. Then you got stage stage five. Typically, stage five achieving stage five is a million dollars per quarter in hero pipeline attributed to the program by software self-reported attribution or other means that we're going to develop. But I'll like I'll really break down the ROI model so you can see it with the concept of being able to go to the leadership team and say the same thing that they do with product development. They go in and say, we have insights from customers. We want to build this feature. It's going to cost us $150,000 to build it. And it's going to take us 6 months to build it and launch it. And because when we build this and launch this, we think that we're going to expand X amount of customers and cross-sell. We're going to get all these types of companies that we're blocked with because our competitor has this feature and we don't. And we believe that the ROI over the first 12 months will be 4.1x. And we have to get to that level of, of a business case when we develop revenue programs as well. So going to the executive leadership team and saying, Hey, we've gotten insights from customers that we sell to a certain industry and uh, 47% of our customers use TikTok now. We want to do a TikTok Live post organic content through the CEO's profile and run retargeting ads. We have 3 initiatives under the program. It's going to cost us X amount to develop it over the next six months. And in order to be ROI positive, we have to generate X amount of hero pipeline. The whole frame of this is looking at it as the ROI of the overall project, not looking at it about how much we spent in month one and how much did we get back and what was our cost of acquisition in month one. When you do it that way, it means that you're in full execution mode straight away. It kills innovation. Moves into really short termism and it sets up new programs to fail because you don't develop features that if you have, it's going to take you six months to develop a feature, you're not going to show ROI on that in month one. And that's what companies do when they try and innovate on revenue programs right now, which is why you just get no innovation in here. The only innovation, quote unquote, innovation or doing things new that you see in B2B marketing and sales is when a technology vendor comes in and says, hey, try this. And still, we're not scrutinizing against ROI and we're not looking at it that way. And if a team comes and says, hey, we want to do a podcast, hey, we want to do this, oftentimes it fails because of how people look at this ROI calculation. This is something that a CFO, if you come here as a marketing leader and you bring this type of ROI model to a CFO and you frame it up of, hey, we do the exact same thing in product development. This is what I want to do to develop revenue programs. I think you're going to earn a lot of respect. You also get a lot of good feedback on whether or not your assumptions and your modeling are sound. Question here about our customers. So, you're referring to inbound marketing? No, I do not consider what we do inbound marketing. Inbound marketing, invented in the early 2010s or late 2000s, refers to waiting for people to search for you and then come, you know, stumble upon you and come to your website and do that, which is 100% a capture demand function. The demand has to be created for someone to go and search. We're, we almost do the exact opposite. We spend no time on inbound marketing and we crush in creating demand. And then people go to Google and they're not searching, how do I do this? They're searching refine labs, going to the website, already educated, booking a meeting with our sales team. So no, I don't see this as inbound marketing. Are buyers coming inbound to buy? Yes, but the mechanics of how you actually drive that are very different than the hub, the methodology that HubSpot teaches and practices. Can you talk about doing demand gen? How do you balance it against demand capture? Um, again, yeah. So this is another another good talking point here where I don't like the term demand gen. It's non-descriptive. Most people confuse it with demand capture, and so I think we should just be, we shouldn't call it demand gen anymore. And we should just look at two things. We should look at demand capture and demand creation if that goes into the same if you roll that into the same team that's cool but you really need to be looking at these as two distinctly different things they need different measurement models they operate on different time horizons they require different mindsets they require different activities they require different you know looking at it like that from a budget allocation standpoint and so i think like it really depends on the company if you're in a if you're trying to compete in the bottled water category you can try and go out and ca- you know run ads and and do weed jet and things like that to sell your bottled water, but you're selling a you're selling a commodity in a competitive space in a crowded space, and so it's just going to be really expensive and it's going to be really inefficient and so for the most part, creating the demand is the is the missing piece in b two b companies and creating demand is the place where you get the most leverage because if you're the one who's educating the customer on this problem and looking at it in a unique way and showing them a radically different solution, then more than likely, they're going to choose you when they go and look for it. And if you actually crafted a category strategy and a product strategy based on customer insights that are unique and different, then you should almost be not competing with anyone. And if you're not competing with anyone, you pretty much have to go all in on demand creation. I get that that a lot of people aren't going to be on board with my thinking because they want to compete. They Don't they think creating a category is expensive or hard or dumb? But that's the way that I've seen it work the best, and that's that's where I see the breakdown. If you look at how, and when you think about balancing budgets and things like that, both of them should have to justify against the ROI and the revenue R and D model. Companies spend so much money on paid search and then never scrutinize it against pipeline dollars per advertising dollar. I get in 2020, when you're spending $750,000 a month on Google Ads, and you can't even measure it. I get that in 2020, the world was different. But companies really should be forcing paid search, non-branded, or by, by individual program, branded, non-branded, competitor. And they should be scrutinizing each of those different programs against how much Hero Pipeline you create per dollar in advertising spend. Not conversions, not conversion rate, not leads, not meetings, not ebook downloads. It really has to be looking at a standardized definition of pipeline that you're going to win at greater than 25%, which allows you to project out cost of acquisition. If you're getting $8 in Hero Pipeline for every dollar you spend on ads, then at minimum, you're getting $2 in revenue for every dollar you spend on ads, which almost every SaaS company, even in this climate, would still take every day. Is the pay after pay for performance agency model sustainable. It really depends on how you define performance. This is what outsourced SDR firms do, and it was sustainable until it wasn't. It was sustainable while nobody cares about costs and efficiency, and it becomes very unsustainable when companies shift their mindset to it. and And a lot of outsourced SDR firms are gonna go out of business during this time because they didn't have a sustainable model. But paying for per quote-unquote performance, the only way that you have an external fir- firm that's going to be able to get paid for performance is in e-commerce models where you have direct transaction and there is no sales team is with S- outsource SDR firms that are you're going to pay them per meeting, not per qualified meeting that your sales team wins. You could pay for performance from a... Lead gen agency or demand gen agency that's going to go out and get you three hundred content downloads from LinkedIn for your for your SDRs to call. If you look at a pay per per performance model outside of ecom direct response, it's almost never going to be about revenue. It's like the performance is going to be some intermediate metric that provides. It's just it's like outsourcing an operational function. It's like let's just outsource booking meetings, and then you pay for meetings, but you don't pay for the effectiveness or quality of those meetings, which I think is really the root of the problem. On the quote-unquote agency side, I personally really don't like this model. I would maybe do it in e but again, like when you're talking about a big company and you say pay for performance and you, and you just get totally uh, vulnerable to how the company structures their attribution. And if you're doing stuff in dark social, or you're creating demand, or you're doing those types of things, pay per performance is going to definitely fail because you're not running performance marketing. Anyway, we're building technology and analytics to be able to do a pay per performance model, But it'll take us a little while to build it. And that's how we'll probably approach it in the future. But I've just explained to you, I've learned a ton of reasons why it doesn't work. The concept is beautiful on paper, right? Only pay for the results that you get. But the way that it's set up creates inherent misalignment between the agency and the company because they're not aligned on the same outcome. How do you flag hero pipeline in your CRM? I.e., is there a field that identifies it, what triggers it? Yes, exactly. So we have developed a Salesforce native application. It only works on Salesforce right now, but maybe we'll do it in HubSpot later. But honestly, the Salesforce ecosystem is far stronger. So we'll see. And it literally, it looks back at that pipeline source. For instance, your website with declared intent conversions like demos or chat forms or contact sales, like those types of forms. And it looks at the win rate of every single stage in the trailing six months. And you might see that Stage one has a win rate of 6%, stage two has a win rate of 12%, stage three has a win rate of 27%, stage four has a win rate of 45%, whatever. And so it'll look at that data and it'll say, wow, okay, stage three is the one that's the first one greater than 25%. So all stage three opportunities then become considered at that point, considered here a pipeline. And then it's monitoring the win rate. So if the win rate of stage three goes from 27% to 24%, then stage four becomes the goal. And the innovation here is this is exactly what you would do in a manufacturing facility to to monitor quality control. If the people that are delivering the pipeline are not achieving the quality control metric of win rate, then we're going to change their goal to guarantee alignment between the two functions or between the two disciplines or whatever you want to call it. And so, yes, we have, in addition to automating the tagging and processing of Hero Pipeline, we've also automated the processing, categorization, visualization of hybrid attribution, effectively created the infrastructure for companies to abandon the old way that they look at their thing, which is touch points and campaigns inside of Salesforce, and instead look at it as aggregate programs that are filled with initiatives that are fueled by campaigns. It's just a much higher order look at how we're going to analyze the overall revenue system. This is proprietary IP that my my company has built over the past three years. Just seeing all the flaws in how companies use their CRM and data to make decisions. So attribution, pipeline standardization, data automation, making sure we have the right data when we need it to make good decisions. All that stuff is automated in our Salesforce app that is in beta. If you are interested in trying it out, shoot me a DM on LinkedIn and I'll get it set up to see if it's a good fit for you. Do you think spending money on publications like Forbes and Wall Street Journal is worth it? So I would say no. But there's a caveat here. I don't think that it's not... Someone wrote a Forbes article about me in 2021. And what it did was it opened up A new level of credibility for venture capital firms, private equity firms, larger companies that saw us as kind of like a a risky startup at that point. It added a lot of credibility to what we're doing. But I didn't pay to be in Forbes. I executed for two years and gave people a reason to write a Forbes article about me. And so I think people try and manufacture PR rather than earning it. So instead of paying for PR, Go out there and execute. Go out there and have a strong point of view. Go out there and share your ideas. Make sure that it resonates with people. And then you'd be amazed how fast the earned opportunities come to you to be a podcast guest, to have articles written about you, to be a speaker at a conference or a virtual event. It's just so far superior because then when you actually get there, when the articles written about you, or when you're on stage speaking, you actually have something good to say, not that you had some PR firm write, you know, manufacture an article and pay two thousand dollars for Forbes to publish it. Additionally, like, I don't think that there was a huge viewership on the Forbes article. There's just so much out there. So, what do you get? Like, maybe people are searching Chris Walker and they see that article and it builds some credibility. Like, but yeah, that's my thinking here, Christina. Re uh, in reply to your your LinkedIn poll who demand gen reports to were you surprised by the results any thoughts yeah this was interesting i did a poll on LinkedIn it's entirely not scientific so i'm not not pretending that it is and i'm very open about the things that have i was doing it for general like regular insights and if i saw something interesting i would go deeper and do some formal scientific market research but the results were that like 82% of people said that their uh 82% of people said that their demand gen team reports into marketing. 14% of people said that their demand gen team reports into sales to the CRO, and about 4% was other. Some of those were small companies where you report to the CEO. I'm not surprised by this outlook, but am fascinated, and I continue to be fascinated as I get deeper into this, in this, in how there's all of these different competing things in the function of marketing. And that you combine long-range strategic activities, which is about doing the right thing for the company, like category design and customer insights and product strategy and product road mapping and that type of stuff. And then you combine it under the same leader with people that are saying, we got to hit pipeline this month. And it takes your marketing leader and it makes them more like a sales leader than a strategist. And then companies, especially early stage companies get jammed up because they have everyone working on being part of the revenue team and no one working on how we're going to build a strategy that's going make, to make us successful. And so I think that there, it's very clear that you have basically two camps of CMOs, two camps of CMO candidates, let's put it this way. You have demand-oriented CMOs, and then you have product marketing or brand type of, of CMOs. And every CMO would say, I can do both of those things. And I would say, yeah, I could do both of those jobs too. As potential CMO candidate, I could say that for myself. But I know that the divergence between what you need to do to be successful in product marketing and brand versus what you need to do to be successful in demand gen requires 2 different people. And the reality is that when you're doing, quote unquote, demand gen in companies today, it's really sales support. And if you think about it, instead of... Let me try and frame this up clearly. If you, if you think about it differently, instead of marketing and sales, and you think about it as revenue strategy and revenue execution, then you, revenue ex, you have a revenue execution team that's responsible for creating demand, capturing demand, converting demand, and expanding accounts. And you finally have one revenue leader that can be accountable to revenue because they control all the levers to get there. And that's different because some companies are trying to put their entire marketing team under the CRA. And then you don't have this thing about category design, product marketing. You, you lose all of those long-range effectiveness type of functions because it gets brought under a sales leader. And that sales leader is incentivized in the, in the next 90 days. And so I really think splitting these into 2 different things, having demand gen go under a, a revenue execution team along with sales and account management, optionally account management, and then having a revenue strategy team that might have a sa- it might be led by a sales leader, it might be led by a CMO, just like the revenue execution team could be led by a sales-oriented leader or a marketing-oriented leader. The revenue typically a quote-unquote CRO is very heavily weighted towards sales because that's how it's worked in the past. But there's quite a few marketing-oriented people that could do that job really well too. And so I think that there's some work to be done in how companies structure the differences between their marketing and sales team. And as I keep going through it, I continue to challenge whether this division of responsibility between marketing and sales even makes sense for B2B companies anymore. It creates tons of fundamental misalignments. It creates issues in budgeting by department. And then when you budget by department, then you analyze by department and it creates downstream attribution and measurement concerns and overall misalignments. Whereas if you put demand gen, demand gen, demand create create demand and capture demand in the revenue execution team with the sales team, then you got one leader that can control the whole thing, and then they're going to get scrutinized against cost of acquisition, against how much pipelines created are we do have enough to hit the targets, or how much it's costing us to get that pipeline, and they can control all the levers. They can control the SDRs. You know, how you create demand, how you capture demand, how you convert demand. And right now, because that's it's separated between sales and marketing, who's accountable to revenue when that happens? The CEO. Because you got half the revenue function in marketing, creating demand and capturing demand, some of capturing demand, not all of it. And then you got converting demand and potentially expanding accounts in your sales organization. If the sales leader doesn't have control over creating demand, or all the levers available to capture demand, how can you make them accountable to your overall hitting your revenue target? You can't. I was fascinated that 14% of companies have already made this switch. 14% of companies already have demand gen reporting into sales, which means that most likely they have a strategy oriented, quote unquote, CMO or CMO type of profile that's focusing on all these important things. And then you have clear separation between the long-term and the short-term. And I think over the past 10 to 20 years, because we've made marketing such a promotional demand gen, lead gen, sales support type of activity, that we've lost a lot of sight in what the real value of quote-unquote marketing strategy is. So I'm going to continue to look at this. But at initial glance, like I expect that more companies will make this move. And I've always been against moving marketing under the CRO. But when you clarify it and you say, we're not moving marketing under the CRO, we're moving demand gen under the CRO, it makes a ton of sense to me. I think a lot of sales leaders would benefit from this, have, and I think a lot of sales leaders would enjoy it. And some of them already do, and some of them are really great customers of ours. I think CRO working with us is a really is a really strong fit when they own demand gen. So I was doing it more to learn. We're going to have a lot more scientific research coming out about how companies structure their teams, how they budget, stuff like that later. Hypothetically, as a CEO hiring your first CMO, what are you looking for? This is interesting. I would probably be looking for a CMO that operates a lot like I do. Creates content about what they how they think about marketing. So I know that they know how to create content. And if they create content and they invest their time on it, I know that they know that that's an important thing to do in 2022 and twenty. 20- 23 forward because it's undeniable that it is. I would also be looking at how they think about... When I think about a CMO, what I want someone to do in that role is I want someone to be able to look at how are we going to design our category? How are we going to design our customers? How are we going to define the ICP and our super consumers? I'm looking for... And a lot of CMOs that are listening to this are probably like, yeah, that's me. And a lot of CMOs are like, yeah, that's me. I'm great at that part. And then I get dragged in to how how are we going to hit pipeline this week? And then I get fired or my CMO tenure in a tech company is probably less than 18 months or whatever the stat is. And it's because you have these two massively competing things. So I'm looking for someone that operates and creates content on the internet, shares good perspectives, is participating in events, is active in communities that probably that's has sold before. I used to not be in that camp, but I think whether you're trying to do marketing traditional definitions of marketing or sales, that doing both gives you a huge advantage. So I'd probably look for a CMO that is, has done some level of sales before, or even just gets into sales processes to test messaging. I w- would also be looking for... On a different, a different note and a different side, I'd be looking for someone that is entirely bought into our company vision, that is a great teammate and leader, that is kind and caring and empathetic. So it's, it, there's part hard skill, part, part soft stuff. They both matter. But the, the, uh, Sam, the interesting part of this on your question is that I don't think as a CEO, you should necessarily be looking for a CMO unless you're going to divide the responsibility and then dividing the responsibility between strategy and, ex- and execution long range and short range. and I've seen people make comments here. Oh, you can't separate long range and short range in marketing. They're dependent. You need to do them. And I'm like, that's not true. That's just how you think because you, that's how you've seen it practice for the last 20 years. But it doesn't have to be that way. And at one point, it wasn't like that. So hope that was helpful. Wow. A lot of questions here. Why do you think outsourced SDR firms will fail a lot are hiring right now? I know. I'm. I'm aware. A lot of them are hiring right now. They were hiring like crazy in 2020 and 2021, and the reason is because they're not. It's misaligned with how buyers want to buy. And at some point, at some point, B two B companies will look at the efficiency metrics of their outsourced SDR firms' performance, and they'll look at it not at meetings booked, not at meetings sat but they'll look at it at customer acquisition cost and customer acquisition cost payback period and against that specific program and blend it across the whole thing. And then they'll look at pipeline velocity and they'll look at customer acquisition costs and other metrics across other programs and other pipeline sources like their website, like their ABM intent data-driven outbound program and things like that. And they'll say, wow, these other programs are working way fucking better than our outsourced SDR firm. Let's cut it. And the reason that it's not going to work as well is because buyers don't want it. It doesn't match how buyers want to buy. So it's not like all of them are going to fail and it's not like companies are going to disband their SDR term team anytime soon. But if you just look out into the future, if you look at the past 5 years and what's, how, what's happened with buyers and how they've changed, and you try to extrapolate that out 5 or 10 more years and we expect that buyers are going to buy by getting a fucking cold call by a 23-year-old in 2030. There is no way that's going to happen. So at some point, that function will need to evolve or it will be vulnerable. If each sales leader uses the sales stages different, is it useless to try the hero pipeline approach? Regardless of whether you're trying to do hero or pipeline approach or not, like not being aligned on your sales stages means that you can't forecast. It means that you can't plan. It means that you don't have alignment. It means that you don't have a consistent sales process. And so I would focus on fixing those things first as a prerequisite to implementing the hero approach. Technically, could you implement it anyway? Sure. The win rate metric would account for that difference. But I think that you have uh, more fundamental problems to solve in getting a consistent sales process with consistent data before you take the next step. Industry experts seem to be very important to be able to run such demand creators, oh, just a comment. Cool. Christina, you're in the 14%. Um, so you're, you're in, your company has demand gen reporting to sales. I'd love for you to drop in um, how that's working and, and yeah, what you think about it. Best recommendation for changing business names on a 15-year B2C SaaS. It's effectively a rebrand. It's like changing the business name is effectively a rebrand. If I was going to coordinate like a rebrand, I would coordinate it with a major product introduction or a category introduction or something like that. So that the name comes along as the staple of saying, hey, we're doing something different now. We got a new name. We have a new product. We have a new strategy. I think just changing the name on its own is insufficient. Appreciate you, Sam. Would content be a responsibility of the CMO or sales? It's not sales anymore. It's the revenue execution team. And inside of the revenue execution team, you have create demand, capture demand, convert demand, and expand accounts. And so it would be a responsibility of the revenue execution team. Content would be a part that fuels creating demand and capture demand. Content is a input to programs. You can't run a program without strategy, distribution, and content. You need all three of those things. So, for, if you have a trade show booth, you need some level of a strategy. You need you, the distribution is the booth, and the content is what you make inside of it. Do you have presentations inside of it? What do you put on the wall? How do you attract people in? You need all three of those things. If you're, build, if you're trying to build a LinkedIn pay, like, let's say LinkedIn organic program, you need a strategy. What's our point of view? Who, are we go, you know, who do we want to see this? Who are we trying to resonate with? You need strategy. You need distribution, which is organic posting on LinkedIn. And you need content. You need words or pictures or videos that communicate that point of view. And so when you think about the inputs to a program, content's an input to everything. Even if you're running paid search, you got to write the copy, it's content, um, so you need all three of those things. It's part of demand capture or demand creation. does it need to be sep- does it need to you know have one content for demand creation and one separate for demand capture? Probably not, but m- maybe for some organizations that does make sense. You can see in your question that even for me, it took a long time to really get over this traditional look of sales and marketing and if you you can really get it in your head which is revenue strategy and revenue execution team and then revenue R&D in the middle when the company's ready to innovate and evaluate the programs then you have like a you have a different operating model that i think solves a lot of the core misalignments and challenges that companies are facing when they try and do things like put marketing under their CRO. This is just a different way of looking at at solving that problem by not putting marketing under the CRO but splitting marketing into multiple pieces and then redistributing marketing into different areas of the organization. If you're offered to use a product for free and share your feedback, would you or your company do it? Maybe if our company needed that product, but I'm not in the business of just like testing random stuff. And I'm also very busy. So it would have to be a pretty compelling product for me to consider doing that. US lawmakers have just released a bipartisan bill to ban TikTok. Do you think it'll go through? Honestly, I don't really know. And I don't really care or follow this type of stuff for the reason that the news is just such trash, like watching the news every day and just getting bad news thrown at me all over. And then the politicizing of the news. It used to be about getting the right objective information to people. And now it's about Politicizing every single issue between like polar opposite right and left. I just fucking hate it. So, like, I have no interest in following these types of news cycles. And if things change and TikTok's not here tomorrow, great, I'll do something else. But until then, I'm going to keep using the platform because I can see a lot of people engaged. I know that I'm helping people and I can see it's driving results for my business. So, I would encourage a lot of people to take that stance. Like, a lot of people never did anything on TikTok because they're like, oh, it's going to get banned. A lot of people never did anything on Instagram for another reason. It's just an excuse not to do something new. And so like, regardless of whether TikTok is here or not, the TikTok content stream is now deeply integrated into Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat. Also, almost every social network outside of LinkedIn who just can't seem to innovate on their product is already adopting this content format because it's superior So whether TikTok's doing it or not, I've created a ton of learnings on how to create content, do live streams, engage, create content on the fly in low production cost ways to get a lot of engagement and views. I've learned all those things. And then I can take that and move it to YouTube shorts or or Instagram tomorrow if TikTok's gone. People that haven't spent any time on TikTok are going to struggle a lot more to build from the ground up. I've been doing this for I've been built, making content for more than 10 years. I've been making content for TikTok for almost a, like a year, a little over a year now. And so if you go into it realizing that, hey, a lot of people are using this platform, there must be something about it that's driving millions or billions of people to download it across the world. I create content. It's the most popular content platform in the world right now. I got to figure out how to create content for that type of content medium. It's the most popular one in the world right now. That's the way that I look at it, and I don't care about the news of whether it gets banned or not. Love the questions here. What percentage of your inbound leads come via prospects running across your content versus outbound? 100% of our pipeline, I don't really look at it at the lead level anymore. 100% of our hero pipeline comes from people coming to us somehow saying, Hey, I want to talk to you about implementing revenue RD, your company, or I'm looking to purchase the vault, can we talk about it or things like that. We might try and do something new and different in in an outbound motion at some point, but at the moment, we do not do any outbound and we source no pipeline from outbound. Uh, We've gotten a little bit from events historically. We don't build booths at events, but we go to events and we source deals that way too. Any advice on how to build a culture of posting content on LinkedIn? by having all of the executives at the company do it on an ongoing basis and demonstrating to the rest of the company that it's a critically important thing that executives are going to prioritize their time to do every day or every week. That's how you do it. And then if executives do that every day, then what happens? Then new people that join your company from the outside, they join because they saw your executives and they like what you're doing. They like the way that you think. And then when they get here, they want to post. And so part of it Is the executive showing the company that it's actually important? Many don't. The second piece of it is executives thinking about this in the right way where they realize that this is a good thing for them, not, oh, my employees posted on LinkedIn, they must be looking for another job. And that's culture related. So those are the 2 things. You have to demonstrate that it's important to the company by executives doing it. And you need to create a culture with executive leaders that empower people to do things that they want, that are not having side conversations about, hey, is Jimmy looking for their job? He posted on LinkedIn the past three days that are not coming at you and saying, hey, you posted something that didn't align with our brand guidelines. You got to take it down. All that shit's going to like that. Those are the things that companies do and why none of their employees post on LinkedIn. I've worked at those companies before. I didn't post on LinkedIn at all in 2017. And when I did share my points of view and perspectives, I had to go and talk to HR about it. It's ridiculous. It's easier to create content within your expertise. What would you do if you sell to a different audience? I've been through this uh, quite a few times. I'll drop it uh, real quick to you again as we work on wrapping up here. But there's just so many questions, so I'm going to go a little bit over. When I really figured out the content model, I was selling to emergency medicine physicians. I'm not like them at all. I was building our entire revenue, like the revenue. I guess it was a revenue R and D strategy even back then. It's really what I was doing. I was in that company, demand gen reported into sales. It was mainly STRs, but the management reported into sales. And the CMO was the strategist. What companies are we targeting? What's the wedge to get in? What are the messages that our sales team is going to put forward? She basically owned the go-to-market that, sa- that the revenue execution team executed. And I sat in the middle and I built, built new revenue programs for them that was driving a lot of pipeline in the future. So we kind of had this like semi-built. It's really funny how I look back on that. It was kind of semi-built out and worked really well in 2016, 17, 16 for me. But to get back on your question, I had to do it all. So what did I have to do? I had to actually go out, understand the material well enough to be able to interview people on it. And then I went out and I interviewed every single expert in the field that my customers said that they listened to and trusted. i talked to my customers. I said, who do you trust and get information from and for this type of stuff? And then I went out and asked those people, hey, do you wanna have an interview? I'll be in this town this time. Can I come by with a video team where you can make a video, you'll be able to share it. And experts love to share their perspective, especially in the medical community, but in everywhere, because they spent probably six years doing a clinical trial that was groundbreaking for their career. And they wanna share those learnings with people. So I just interviewed experts and I knew the subject matter well enough to guide the experts to communicate the perspective that matches our company's narrative and position. Insight on how to create a new category as a short term rental management company. You got to figure out how to not be in the short term rental management company category, which is probably going to be hard because, like, a lot of those real estate categories are already established and you could rent it by the hour, right? Like, you could, I mean, I guess that's still short term. I think that you're trying to fit category design into a situation where it doesn't make sense. That, that's like my gut reaction there, but I could be wrong and you should keep exploring it if you want. What are your best tips for staying profitable in the next few years? Recession proof tactics. So, the way that you stay profitable is that you make more revenue every month or every quarter than you spend. That's like the very simplified thing. So, I think conservative revenue planning is a really strong strategy right now, especially when you think about team morale and whether you want to be behind your targets in April or ahead of your targets, so your team feels like they're winning. The conservative revenue projections are really smart. A lot of companies that are dealing with big burn rates might not be able to not have the luxury to do that. And they might get pushed into aggressive planning that sets their company up to not be profitable and have to do other layoffs in 2023. It also is... It's it's not looking like it's going to get any better anytime soon. So like. We're hunkering down for 2023. And I told my team yesterday, I really believe this, that these are the types of opportunities that entrepreneurs should be living for. We've been in a downturn for almost 12 months now. If you're a strong entrepreneur, you should have been in there making adjustments, changing how you structure your team, rebuilding your product, rethinking your business model, rethinking your strategy, coming out of that with a new plan. Those adjustments should already be in place right now, 12 months later. And then for however long this goes on, for all of 2023, or maybe this goes for two years, and we're in this for you know, we're in a slowdown for two years, that now you're in pure offensive mode for two years. And while all of the other people in the market are closing up and playing defense, you're out there playing offense. And it levels the playing field and it lets companies that make smart, strategic, deliberate adjustments can take can make massive gains and build huge companies by adjusting to what the market needs fast. That definitely favors smaller startups, smaller, probably less than a thousand people. So not like not 10 people companies being agile, like smaller companies, less than a thousand people can make those types of moves. I think this is really what you want as an entrepreneur. And when you're building a company is moments like this, I think a lot of people are taking the negative approach to this. I think they're, they're looking at it like this is bad. My revenue's going down and, not ma- and all they're doing is cutting costs. They're not making strategic adjustments. So they're just trying to make main- their, their revenue is just declining. They're lowering costs to keep it profitable. But at some point, you gotta say what we have, the product that we have, the position that we have, whatever in the market today doesn't match what the market needs today. We need to make changes. So I think if I, I guess as I just explained it, I think making strate- like deliberate strategic adjustments based on customer insights and what customers need today, I think is one of the most important things moving forward here. I think conservative revenue planning is a good one. And I think that focus and strategic clarity at the company of what are the things that we're gonna invest in and focus on and what are the things that we're not going to do. I think those are three key things that I would have you look at. It was great for you all to be here. Really appreciate it. This was such great questions and things like that. I'm going to be sending out a note or I'll put it somewhere. I'll put it on my profile or something. We're going to try and move these to be more back and forth, like I mentioned before. So either on Zoom or other things like that. So stay tuned for that. We might be back next Tuesday. It's my birthday. It's also close to the holiday season. So we might be back, but I'm not sure. And I appreciate you all being here. It's just so fun to get here, share my ideas, learn a new platform, help some people out. So again, hope you all have a great rest of your week and we'll see you soon.